Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, February 25th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. This is for information purposes only. Please do your own due diligence and research. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay. Uh, this week's video is going to be a lot of economic type stuff, the majority of it. I don't have any sensational news around uranium or oil, um, but I've been reading and listening to views of people both on the bull and bear side around the markets in the economy. Um, you know that we talked about uh, the the actionable intelligence alert base case for this year um, that we're in the, you know, hop phase. We're in this air timing right now where everybody is feeling euphoric. The market's moving higher. Some people are even saying this is a new bull market. Um, I do not look at it that way. I look at this uh, the way that was characterized by another analyst. You know, we're in the hop phase and we're going to enter a drop phase as the realities and the legacy effects of the liquidity tightening that's happening by the Fed and the QT eventually uh, gets a foothold and starts affecting the economy. Um, one of the things that people are seeming to forget, and one of the things that I'm um, looking at previous cycles, is that liquidity really matters. You know, we go back to uh, what Stan Druckenmiller says of what drives markets and it's liquidity. And we've um, we're tightening liquidity the hardest we have in many in decades. Okay, and so if the upward bull market and blow off tops that we had in assets over the last year as we came out of the pandemic, which was a result of the fiscal spending and the monetary um, expansionism that we saw. Conversely, if we tighten those and reverse those, why wouldn't we expect a pullback, uh, maybe of the same magnitude or worse? And people are forgetting that for some reason. Um, now, a lot of the things that people are putting out as bull cases, like, well, jobs, um, the jobs situation, John, look at that. We have the lowest unemployment. We have two jobs openings for every unemployed person or, or these type of statistics. And that's true. Those are true statements. But those are lag. Jobs are always a lagging indicator. And we've explained why that is. Again, I'm not an economist. And, you know, I'm not even trying to play one on YouTube, but we have to have some type of framework that we're working from to try to figure out what's going to happen. And we try to do that in a probability based way, like if we're playing poker or something, just because you have ace ace doesn't mean you're going to win the hand. If you play ace ace the correct way, uh, this is in Hold'em, you're going to you know, have more wins than losses over a thousand hands, but that doesn't mean every individual hand is going to be a winner. So we have to look at the probabilities. We have to look at this and look at the past of when things, certain things have happened in the past, what was the outcome? And then if we are mirroring those previous setups, what's the probability that we see the same type of outcome? And that's really what we're trying to do here. We're not trying to be economic forecasters. We're not trying to be an economist. What we're trying to do is say, this is the information that we have. And when somebody makes an argument for a bull case or an analyst says, well, you know, 
jobs, look at jobs, you know, and it's like, okay, well, I'm looking at it and it's a lagging indicator because employers are very risk. They don't want to lay off people and then have the economy turn around and then have to reverse and rehire people and then retrain them. That's a real big cost. But if their sales continue to go down, if they're getting squeezed on their margins at some point, they're going to have to reduce employment. So anyway, coming back to the first slide, uh, this is Tom McLennan. Uh, he's a technical analyst type guy. He's, he's pretty good. I follow him. I've listened to him on a few podcasts. I like this particular slide. And, and, and the thing I want to admit here, guys, let me just say one more thing before we get into the slide deck. We do have to be cognizant of the confirmation bias that we, okay, we created a certain base case model that we think has the highest probability of happening based on the data set we have, current data. But we have to be cognizant that we just don't go out and try to find things that bolster our argument and confirm what we want to be true. And that's very difficult to do. So let's just keep that in mind and challenge the ideas because we have to be very, getting this right is going to be very, very important. Um, and because if you can avoid what I think is going to happen over the next couple quarters, which is going to be a turn from bullishness to bearishness, and, you know, we could see the S&P maybe drop to, you know, 3,200 or something. So um, earnings are not going to be where they have been in the past. And so the market's going to re-rate these sediment shifts happen, can happen very quickly. So anyways, let's get into it. Um, I just want to be sure that we're not, you know, confirming our biases sometimes. So this is a chart showing the S&P 500. Um, it only goes back to 2000. Sometimes you got to take these things with a grain of salt because, you know, what's the data set that goes back from to, you know, like as far back as you can. But this is a, uh, this is interesting. In the entire published history of monetary aggregates since 1959, there has never been an M2 drop as big as what we are experiencing. I still think that is going to matter after the 12-month lag does its thing. And this is exactly what we are hanging our hat on in our forecast, that people are not taking into account the lag effect, which can take up to a year with these monetary changes that we've had these rate increases that we've seen unprecedented in their um, velocity upwards and, you know, the continued QT, okay, that continues to, you know, chip away at the liquidity every month. And so those have lag effects and we haven't experienced the full effect of those lag effects. You know, if you look at where we were with rates this time last year, we were substantially lower from where we are now. So as these things continue to make their way into the economy, they're going to continue to bite and ratchet down on um, liquidity. So anyways, as you can see, you see the um, over time as M2 has increased. Uh, this is M2 divided by GDP shifted forward 12 months. You can see these surges. You have price responses in the market. Um, you see over time as the monetary aggregate has moved higher. You've seen a rise in the market. You saw this is the pandemic response. This is, you know, unprecedented. Okay. Um, and you saw that, you know, what did we have happen in the markets? We had this bubble in stocks, bubble in real estate, bubble in bonds, all of these things. So 
we've since subsequently, you know, we kind of peaked in the S&P because there was no more rocket fuel. It's like a rocket that's going up, trying to escape the gravitational pull of the Earth. And as the engine shuts off, um, the gravity starts pulling on the rocket. So here we go. I mean, it kind of leveled off. And then we, the M2 money, monetary aggregates, and then we've, you know, rolled over as we had no more impetus to push these asset prices, which were already tremendously overvalued, higher. And now you're seeing these this drop um, in the monetary aggregates, which we have not seen in the past. I don't know how far this goes down, but I don't see how the market continues higher when liquidity is tightening. Now, you have to look at liquidity sometimes in a global context. You have liquidity expanding, continuing to expand in Japan and in China specifically. Um, this can have a spillover effect, but I don't think it would be sufficient to um, repel the entire world equity markets higher. Uh, so this is... You have to take this into context. What do you? What is the probability of the market moving higher as liquidity tightens, and we reverse this rocket ride here? Of the probability of S and P moving higher or lower? My bet would be lower. So here's Jesse Felder, another guy that we follow on Twitter. Um, he's talking about. Uh, you know, what's the likelihood of a bull market from these levels? And he's showing the S&P price to sales. Again, you have to take this somewhat with a grain of salt because it's just one indicator. You can't, you know, are we guilty of cherry picking? I don't, I don't think so. We have to be careful of the confirmation bias, as I mentioned before, but here we go. He's talking about, this is a link to uh, John Hussman, who has been bearish for many years. So take that into context. The quote is, the 2022 decline... Did, not, did nothing but remove the most extreme froth from valuations. To expect an extended market advance from here is essentially to view the areas in the red box as the new normal and to dispense with all the market history before late 2020. So we're showing uh, previous peaks in the market and what the price to sales ratio was at these per previous peaks. And if you looked at the decline that we had last year, it only brought us down to about 2.42, uh, the price to sales ratio, which if you look in the context of previous history, or 2.43 is what they're shown as the current, we're, we're still in that area of previous peaks, okay? And so that's my argument. This market has pulled back from last year, and now we've had this technical bounce if you want to call it that and a lot of people are subscribing that this is a new bull market but the as i you know just demonstrated the monetary aggregates are not there to propel the market higher and if you look at the valuations on price to sales based on previous peaks um we're, we're right in the wheelhouse of you know the start of previous declines so again i think the bias is towards lower not higher which i think fits into what we think is going to happen you know we think as the monetary uh situation works its way through the economy it's going to cause uh earnings to go down it's going to cause something to break whether it's the market some big company 
uh, I think a lot of these, I've always said, I think these zombie companies are the ones that are going to get us in trouble, even though we're still not seeing any um, distress and high yield debt yet, but I think it's coming. So we don't know what the catalyst will be to reverse the decline in liquidity, but it will come at some point. And so there's no reason to stand on the tracks in front of a train. Uh, just step off to the side. And I'm going to get into that in another slide coming up. This is just another data point showing that, you know, we're overvalued. And so here's uh, Crestcat Capital. I'll put a link to their, they put out, they, they do like a monthly, um, I don't know what they call it, but it's like a report and they put a lot of things, data points and charts, pretty good. And what I think is interesting on this one is the going back to like even the 50s, showing this basically trend of where earnings peak, S&P earnings, nominal earnings, uh, and then showing the, um, you know, what has happened, uh, you know, with earnings, they reach a cyclical high and then they go and decline and this is what we're talking about as being the catalyst for lower lower stock prices in the, in the general stock market yes there's there's pockets that we're still going to try to play that are going to because there's always a bull market somewhere but in general i mean the data is like the, the the probabilities here you're seeing in the past what has happened okay um and you see you know as liquidity tightens as rates go up we would expect that business activity is going to slow down that's going to affect earnings. Um, another valuation here, uh, mega cap. You're talking about these type of companies over here, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet. You could see them over here. The companies that everybody loves, but they have huge market caps. Uh, mega, tap, mega cap tech bubble then versus now. So you could see at the peak of the previous tech bubble, um, Enterprise value as a percent of GDP, you see it peaked slightly below 30 and then declined, okay, down to below 10% of GDP. And you see that at the peak uh, in 2021, during the bubble that we, I hope people acknowledge that we were in a bubble, you see that we're at 50. So you see that we have, we're dropping, but we're, we're still, even after that drop, we're still at levels that are above the previous high of the previous tech bubble in 2000. And so do you think that you, this is why you look at something like this and you say, okay, do I, and you have to look at these companies. These companies are so large now, they are the economy, the market caps. And so are they able to actually grow substantially faster than the economy at large? Well, in some cases, yes, but not in all cases. And so are they really, do they really deserve uh, an overvaluation or a higher uh, valuation than the market um, if their growth prospects aren't the same as they were, say, you know, earlier in their evolution as companies? I mean, these companies now are the, are the market, they are the economy. And so um, if the economy in general is not going to grow as fast or possibly enter a recession, how can these valuations stay above levels that were pro were, were um, present during the previous tech bubble? I mean, this, these are just questions you have to ask yourself as you're, again, trying to establish what are the probabilities of where we're going? Does the argument stand 
that we're in a new bull market. I don't think so. Um, here we have U.S. corporate bond yields minus the Fed funds rate. Um, you can see that right now that the, um, you know, corporate bonds, uh, I mean, you can get risk-free, you can get a risk-free uh, return, well, 99.999% buying T-bills and it's higher than the corporate bond rate. So why would you take the, um, why would you take the risk of corporate bonds? And not only that, I think I have another chart coming up. The earnings yield on the S&P is currently around 5%. So what's that mean? So if you buy the S&P as a whole, the earnings yield of the S&P, that means the earnings that um, as a percent of the of the market cap is around 5.1% currently. And I had a chart, but I didn't put it in this week's, but you can look it up with the current earnings yield of the S&P, it's tracked. It's about 5%. So you can get on a one-year T-bill around 5%. So why take the risk of stocks when you can get the same yield, okay? Because stocks ultimately are valued on what their ability to, on their earnings, okay? Because earnings then theoretically are, can be returned to shareholders via dividend and buybacks. So if you have a 5% yield on earnings on the S&P, you're taking a substantial amount of risk uh, to own stocks when you can get the same earn, you can get the same yield in a T bill. Why do that? And forget about corporate bonds. Why would you? Why would you take less of a return uh, on a corporate bond than you can get in, uh, like I said, a T bill? Uh, and then you know it's so easy to go on Treasury Direct. What I'm trying to say is the risk reward is not slanted to stocks in general right now. Uh, here's another tweet by uh, Tavi Kasev. He's at Crestcat. Says, um, this is interesting. Says, Microsoft still has a higher market cap than the entire energy sector in the S&P today. So just one company in tech has a higher market cap than the entire energy sector. Then he goes on to say, Exxon alone, okay, just Exxon, produces just as much annual free cash flow as Microsoft today. So you can buy the same amount of cash flow by just buying buying Exxon, okay, um, than buying Microsoft, okay. So if you bought the say XLE that includes Exxon and all the other oil companies, um, th th that the energy sector is producing more cash flow, yet Microsoft is still valued higher. I, don't know, I hope that makes sense. It says, uh, no, this is not just specific to Exxon. It says all the energy companies in the S&P are profitable on a free cash flow basis. Either tech companies are still too expensive or energy stocks remain a bargain or both. Probably both. Um, when you have gaps like this, um, they typically close by, you know, we would anticipate the tech companies coming in in valuation and the energy companies um, revaluing higher. As you know, we are, Looking at this from a longer term perspective in the actionable intelligence alert newsletter, um, we are long term bulls on energy. We think that it's going to outperform this decade, obviously with cyclical, you know, pullbacks. And so would I rather if I had to own, ask yourself this question, if you were only given two choices, you had to put your money into either and you had to hold it there to the end of the decade, would you choose Exxon or Microsoft? 
based on what with the information I just gave you, what would what do you think? What do you think the probability is of which one will be higher by the end of the um, decade, just based on the current valuations and their ability to produce cash flow and their prospects going forward? I would pick Exxon. Because in the end, the cash flow always matters, right? And if you're generating, you're so undervalued, the cash flow is so undervalued at Exxon relative to Microsoft's cash flow. I mean, you have to take that bet. You know, the argument will be, well, if you think the economy is going to come in, oil prices are going to go down. Yes, but that is, we're accounting for that in the cyclicality inside of the larger secular bull market. I thought this was an interesting chart. You know, people, I'm, I have this, I'm torn both ways around gold. I do hold gold bullion. I have speculated in a few gold uh, juniors. You know, Crescat Capital, that's what they do. They they speculate in gold uh, companies. They do a lot of private placements. Um, you can watch. They have uh, YouTube videos where they have their chief geologists come on. They review uh, their holdings of what's going on with the drilling. I mean, it gets kind of technical. It's very interesting. They're long videos. They also talk about, you know, the current economic uh, situation as they perceive it. But they do generate a lot of these thought-provoking charts. And what I thought was interesting here, this chart goes back. You've got two data sets on here. You have global gold production as represented by these bar charts. And then you have gold prices. And what's interesting is, is you see these gold bull, gold bull market, price bull markets here and here. And then what corresponded to was a multi-year, almost like a decade-long drop in gold production. So as gold supply went down because mining or my, let's call it mining supply went down, the amount of gold produced, you saw the consummate bull markets in the gold price. Um, during the 70s, you had a 1500% increase in the gold price on a 19% decrease in mine supply of gold. Uh, at the early 2000s, when we had a move of 500% the gold price that was that was corresponding with a 11% um, decline in gold production over about a decade. Now I'm not saying that that was the only factor, but it's interesting to note. And what are we seeing now over the last couple of years? We saw gold production peak in around 2020 and the last couple of years we're seeing gold production decline or gold mining supply decline. Again, that doesn't guarantee that the gold price goes up, but based on previous history, we've seen, and you'd have to go back. I'm not saying, this is where you have to be careful and not cherry pick certain things. We'd have to go back and say, was this the primary driver of why the gold price moved higher? We knew that this was an inflationary period. This was a period where, you know, you had, you know, a long drawn out bear market. I mean, there could be other factors. So what was the highest weight factor to drive the gold price higher? I'm just pointing out what one of them could be and that we have a similar setup here. Um, it, it probably requires some additional analysis, but it seems to be positive of what has happened in the past. Something to, to, to keep an eye on. No guarantee. Like, again, it's one data point. But I think, you know, what I, I'll put a link to this report that I got these things out of. You can follow them if you choose. Uh, Crestcat Capital, you can watch some of the videos. I th find them interesting. I've gotten a, several ideas on some junior miners that have performed well for me 
as trades in my own portfolio. Um, but, uh, you know, again, junior mining is a minefield. So this is why I don't put a lot of these type stocks in the portfolio because <clears throat> in the course of a year, the price of a junior mining company, an explorer, if you will, can deviate by 50% or more. So from its high to its low, and that's only for the strong stomached type speculators. So um, we're talking about how we think that, you know, the U.S. economy is primarily a consumer driven economy. It's a mature economy. Consumer spending is somewhere about between like 70 to 80 percent of the economy in the U.S. And so here's two major retailers, Walmart, a general retailer, as you know, Home Depot. We all know what these companies sell and they had their earnings in the last week or so, and they weren't very good. And both of their outlooks going forward weren't very positive. And so another data point, if you will, about what's the real state of this economy. And so um, let's just review this. I'll put a link to these. Again, I try to put links to the articles where I grab this information. Sometimes they're paywall protected. I'm not going to tell you. There are ways to get around the paywalls. You could figure that out for yourself. I don't want to get accused of uh, doing that. Uh, I'm, I'm told there are ways to get around the paywalls. Uh, if you search around, you can figure that out. Anyway, um, so Home Depot and Walmart reported earnings that let down investors. The retail giant shared full-year guidance that disappointed investors since a spending slowing down is projected for the year. Walmart, the world's largest retailer, beat analyst expectations on earnings and sales estimates in its report released Tuesday. However, the company announced a lack lost, lackluster outlook for the physical year 2024. Home Depot reported its earnings for Q4 2022 and missed Wall Street's revenue expectations for the first time since November 2019. Revenue slightly fell to $35.83 billion versus 35.97 expected by analysts. So they're basically flatlined on their revenue. The company sees consumers spending their discretionary income on experiences outside the house. Moving forward, the company expects sales to be approximately flat in the new physical year. So these are two major retailers that are not giving very good positive guidance going forward. Um, it could be that, you know, the spending's just going to shift to going out, like Home Depot says, to cruises and going to Disney World and stuff like that, going out to high-end restaurants. We'll see. But, uh, you know, these are these are two data points that we probably shouldn't ignore. Um, you know, as, again, as right now, I think that the consumer is okay. You know, as long as people have money, 90% of people spend money. If you put money there, we found that out during the pandemic as people gave, you know, the government just put money in people's accounts, extended unemployment benefits, suspended having to pay your mortgage or rent payments in some states. People were cash flush and we saw what happened. They went out and spent. They have a high propensity to spend. Most people are not savers. Most people's time preferences are skewed to the short term. So, you know, when we see something like this, I it makes my ears perk up. So things continue to line up, you know, data points about have we reached the peak for this cycle of earnings and now we head down. 
again, that's my th that's the prospects that I'm operating on. So there's an article here in Northern Miner. I used to get this. It used to come out like in a they'd send it to you it was like printed out like Barron's is and kind of a newspaper type print, but kind of in that smaller than a newspaper is about 50 pages thick. Um, I don't know how they do it now. I haven't subscribed to this for years, but they had a pretty good article. Um, it's nothing new if you're in uranium, but I like to, you know, share these things because, you know, just to keep people reminded of the, the, the why we're why we're still bullish on uranium. Just a couple snippets from the article. After a dozen years in the doldrums, uranium prices are on the rise, supported by real growing demand and support for nuclear power, as well as geopolitical concerns. Then it goes in there and says, globally, China dominates the narrative as reactor builds are accelerating potentially to eight to 10 reactors per year. Its midterm goal is for a world leading fleet of 100 operating reactors, 50% more than the U.S., South Korea has reversed policy and plans to achieve 33% nuclear with its energy mix, mix by 2030. Japan, which is particularly impacted by LNG imports and prices, is striving faster reactor restarts and longer life extensions in response to the Russian invasion. It plans to increase its operating reactor count from 10 to 17 by 2023 and ultimately to 35 including two new builds. So this is nothing new for us. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'll put a link to the article. You can read it at your leisure. Again, I just like to remind people occasionally of the bullish factors uh, and to, you know, nothing, again, you, as I've recommended people do, you know, people say, well, how can you remain bullish on uranium? Because what I do, as I've said many times, is when I take these long-term positions, I write down in a, write down in a notebook, why I am invested in these things, okay? Why I put my money into these companies. And then I revisit those points at different, maybe, you know, different points in the year. And then I go through and say, does this, are these points still valid? And if they are, then I, I remain, you know, do they remain valid to the point that I expect the return to be higher than if I went left this particular thesis and moved into another one. So if something else came along that had a, a more uh, had higher prospects for um, me to be bullish on, then yes, I would probably pare back my uranium uh, positions and go into those positions. But I haven't seen that yet anywhere. So. Um, I continue to uh, revisit the thesis. Nothing's changed. And uh, we'll continue to uh, hold on and participate in what I think is, uh, you know, going to is a bull market in uranium and will continue to be a uranium bull market. And so here's a snippet from a bison interest that's um, came out with a, Paper, they write a lot of papers. Remember now, Bison Interests, it's Josh Young's shop. And he is an investor in oil stocks, okay? So he is going to be talking about oil stocks, you know, because he's invested in oil stocks. So understand that, that that's called talking your book. Um, but he has an interesting um, perspective on things and deep dives things. Uh, same thing with Nine Point Partners, Eric Nuttall. It's a Canadian you know, fund that invests in oil stocks. So 
they're not going to be talking about Walmart and Home Depot. They're going to be talking about oil stocks and looking for it. So keep that in mind when you read the, the, this work. But still, that doesn't discount it. It makes interesting, uh, valid points. And so the point in this particular paper, which I'll put a link to it uh, in the show notes, is the opportunity that exists in small cap oil stocks. Um, small cap oil stock equities continue to trade at a material discount to larger cap peers, despite some compelling advantages. In addition to their cheapness, small cap oil and gas equities, as proxied by the small cap energy ETF, have lagged larger cap oil and gas companies, the oil price, and the broader market over the last 10 years. If you go to the white the, the paper they wrote, they show the charts. Uh, while share prices often underperform for good reasons, small cap oil and gas equity fundamentals have improved faster than that of their large cap peers. Improving operating netbacks gave smaller producers free cash flow leverage to rapidly rising oil prices, while equity valuations remained low, resulting in unusually high free cash flow yields on equity. Indeed, relative share price underperformance coupled with rapid fundamental improvement have rendered valuations more compelling, even after the rise in share prices from the pandemic lows. So why, why if these are so great, do they underperform? Well, many reasons. I mean, um, there's a hesitancy. I mean, a lot of these companies are just unknown by a lot of people. A lot of them are in Canada. Nobody pays attention to stocks, you know, there. It's not on people's radar. Um, fund managers aren't interested in some of these things are like the capitalizations are under a billion dollars. They're not able to invest in them. There's not a lot of, you know, research into these things. But if you look at some of these companies, you know, in the past, they've been mismanaged. People were just drilling for the sake of drilling. You know, they weren't managed properly. But that has kind of changed with a lot of the companies now because um, with the impetus to pay down debt and return capital to shareholders, um, that has been a significant change in the way things are managed. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's not going to change in the future. But, you know, even at current oil prices, some of the, we have a couple companies in the portfolio that have performed very well. They have long life, low decline assets, and the company managements have used the last couple years of higher oil prices or relatively higher oil prices to really put themselves in a financial, better financial condition by paying down debt to the point now where they now have manageable debt levels that even at substantially lower oil prices can be, you know, dealt with, don't put them at risk of failure, and yet still return capital to shareholders. And so if you are like me, with a view that you think that the underinvestment in oil and, and energy in general, coupled with insatiable appetite for energy, which is required for higher living standards around the world, then you know that eventually, uh, energy prices move higher just because the supply is going to lag the demand. Um, so these, a lot of these companies that are unknown that are trailing um, are, um, again, have compelling valuations because no one cares about them. Now, I think that once it's recognized that we're in this energy deficit, that we're in an energy bull market, that this is a secular trend, 
I think you'll see money come in. I think you'll see mergers and acquisitions. And I see, think you'll see the, the proportion of energy in the indexes and in people's portfolios will grow over time as the re revelation comes in. You know, one of the things you have to remember is everybody's still biased to what worked over the last 10 years, okay? When we just talked about those mega cap tech companies, you just had to buy the dip because the Fed had your back. There was a Fed put. And in that kind of low interest rate environment, low inflation environment, that's what works. And so it's kind of like when you hear the um, conversation around generals and admirals fighting the last war, okay? Um, you know, the era of the battleship went away, uh, but people were still building battleships until it became obvious that they could not, they, they weren't the... It's a similar thought process. People are always looking in the past instead of looking to the future. And uh, so people still have the view that, well, you know, I'm better off if, if the price of Apple and Amazon and Tesla drops. That's what's worked in the past. It's like Pavs, Pavlov's dog. I just keep going back. Every time the bell rings, I go back because uh, I know I'm going to get fed. And that will eventually change. That sediment change will happen over time, but it takes time. And as I said last week, these things always take longer than you think that they should take or will take. Uh, that's one thing I have learned. So you have to be prepared. Again, um, you have to be prepared to be patient and you have to have done your research and created a narrative or thesis and have conviction in that because you are going to have volatility and you are going to question yourself. Did I make the right decision? Did I think this outright? You know, you just saw Tesla during the last couple of months double in price again. You know, it had a big drop and then I think it doubled. Does that mean we're in a new bull market? I don't know. Is that a short covering rally or a bounce? I think that's what it is, the latter, not the former, but that's what can happen. And then, it caused, and then in the meantime, you know, the oil price is slowly, you know, deteriorating. And you, and you question whether your thesis is correct, but the underinvestment didn't go away. The continuing advancement of the world's uh, emerging markets into the middle class, which will require substantially more energy that isn't hasn't been funded yet. That exploration and development hasn't been funded. That's the thesis. But you know, in the next over a period of a quarter or two, you can get into a situation where uh, the price doesn't validate your thinking uh, short term, and then you begin to question yourself. So the, over time, if the thesis is correct, it's going to pull the energy prices higher and pull those stocks higher. And then momentum and sediment will shift towards that. I hope I explained that okay. Uh, but that's how you have to think of these things. Again, you know, Buffett's uh, spoken on this. In the short term, the market is a voting machine in the long term it's a weighing machine so that's how i look at it um if you look at uh take a look at the paper you can determine for yourself uh, if you think it has validity but i think there again is opportunity in, in this uh, particular um uh sector so i wanted to talk about this this is a chart that was in uh the u.s global investors weekly um they put out a weekly email with different sectors and discussion around uh, different uh, the economy, investment themes and stuff. And this is 
kind of an interesting situation because this is what we've been talking about kind of in the background a little bit. And what you see here is, is the value of the U.S. stock market as a percentage of total global equity market cap. This just goes back to 2004, but you see that, you know, um, after – it would be better to show a longer-term chart, but the argument is made as well, you know, look at the U.S. The U.S. has 5% of the world's population and 16% of the world's GDP, and yet it has a market cap of 40 – above 40% market cap. And so the argument is, well, that's American exceptionalism, right? That's the rule of law that we have, the stability that we have, um, the free markets that we have. That's the argument that's being made on this. And I would suggest you, you know, Warren Buffett said the same thing. A lot of people have gone broke betting against the United States uh, or words to that effect. And I agree with that up to a certain point. That has been the past. But what are we looking at here? I'm not going to get into the whole litany. I, I, there's other people that have written about this. But what about the rest of the world? You know, everything else, you know, American exceptionalism, that probably was the case, you know, after World War II through the 50s, 60s, and into the early part of the 70s, you know, and then we we did a lot of, we changed a lot of things, you know, and things have been, we have a lot of things that are deteriorating and we're living off a lot of inertia. We're living off a lot of, uh, in my view, um, previous policies and I should say um, way of living our lives here in the United States that's changing now. Um, and I don't want to get into it too much because it's a philosophical discussion, but I don't believe that the same conditions exist the conditions that existed that allowed for the exceptionalism, I think, are more of a mirage now and are deteriorating than they were in prior decades, okay, when it was absolutely true. And I look around the world and I see pockets of places that are doing the right things. You know, I talk about um, in the portfolio, we have a company that is entirely focused on the Republic of Georgia. And if you look at the history of the country after the fall of the Soviet Union, they knew that they were a small country and how are they going to compete and and attract capital in a world that you have to compete with your neighbors for capital and everybody else in the world for capital. And so they looked at the history of the world and looked at places like Singapore and Hong Kong and these places. And I'm not saying they necessarily emulated it directly, but what they did do was make the make it easy to do business there, make economic reforms that are pro-business that uh, restrained government uh, uh, regulation. It's very easy to set a business up there. It's very easy to bring capital in and out of the country. You make it easy for capital to flow to you. Again, capital flows to where it's best treated. And if you look at the economy there over the past decade or so, it's kind of compounded at about a five to 6% um, average combined average you know growth rate. And so, you know, we have a particular security in the portfolio that is entirely trying to capture uh, that growth in GDP through various business ventures and holdings in the country, and it sells for a substantial discount. And so I look at places like that and say, okay, um, do, would I rather buy like a property in California or would I rather buy into a company that can buy at a, you know, 50% or less, you know, 
discount in that asset value because no one knows about it or cares about it, but has made the reforms. Similar thing, why I'm bullish on a place like Uzbekistan. You know, same thing. Uh, you're in a landlocked country. You have a lot of advantages that were left over from Soviet times. And you, up until recently, you had a mismanaged economy. You had a closed economy. It wasn't as bad as North Korea, but it was similar. I mean, up until just recently, for example, in Uzbekistan, um, every summer when they have, the, or whenever the cotton uh, harvest was, people had to leave the cities and go and harvest cotton by hand. You know, we have machines here in South Texas that do that. One guy drives it and it bails it and drops it behind the machine and a and truck comes and picks it up. You don't need to bring everybody from the city to handpick the cotton. So what I'm telling you is, is that places do reform themselves. They, you get the right leadership in place. There are other opportunities. And I see, just to sum this conversation up without getting too far into this, because this could be a multi-video discussion and argument with people. The things that made the United States exceptional, the things that made it so successful uh, notwithstanding the two moats that it has around it, the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, that you know we never really had any big wars here. We weren't involved in the world wars on our own soil, so to speak, to affect us like it was in Europe. But you know, those things I feel are deteriorating. So is it warranted that a country with five percent of the world's population and sixteen percent of the GDP still has forty above forty percent of the you know? Do you think that that continues at that level? moves higher or has a tendency to move lower as other countries are advancing as other countries see you know they're not going to be perfect and it's going to be in fits and starts i mean you look at a country like india it has extreme poverty but it also has a middle class of 400 million people uh, until you know they've had big movements there of paving roads increasing infrastructure electrifying their countryside things that were productive um Productivity increases in the U.S. when we when we electrified our rural areas. So, you know, does that create more opportunity uh, when you see you know the Indian economy compounding at seven to eight percent a year, or the Georgian economy at five and six, and you see the reforms there, and you say, okay, again, it's probability, and so you have to ask yourself that question. So, I think this is an interesting intellectual exercise uh, because it makes sense because a lot of People in the U.S., most investors in the U.S. are, they have home bias. Most investors in every country have home country bias. And I have the view, and it's so easy now, becoming easier every year to invest overseas. And so there's opportunities, you know, make the world your oyster is, I guess, the lesson that I would take from this. So I thought this was an interesting thing to talk about. Um Again, you know, the United States is still probably one of probably the best place in the world to bring capital to. That's why people come here. That's why people move their money here whenever there's distress. That's why the dollar, you know, when you had this war in Europe, a lot of money came to or this war in Eastern Europe, Ukraine. Initially, people you had a big surge of capital come to the United States, which is something that happened during World War II and World War One. So, um, but are things is the trend? to still be exceptional or are we seeing deterioration and i think you can make the argument that the things that made us that way are slowly but surely crumbling under our feet uh if you you know give me your thoughts in the comments I'm kind of curious what other folks think
All right, guys, that's it for this week. Um, again, you know, looking for opportunities is what we're doing. We kind of holding what we got. Um, I was going to get into the fact that uh, we had a coal stock that in the portfolio that we sold uh, in the portfolio, the returns where we had two tranches that we had bought of this particular coal stock. I'll probably get into it as a lesson learned or take you through maybe in the next couple of weeks, one of the videos talk about what why we got into this particular company what was the what was the reasoning to get into it what was the catalyst and then why we exited and we ended up with uh based on the two different tranches between 400 and 600 percent returns over the last couple of years and that's that's kind of what you know those are exceptional returns that's not every you know every stock's going to do that but um that was that was a tremendous uh win for us. So I'll probably go over that uh, in one of the videos just to show you the thought process of the entry process and the exit process. I think people might find that interesting. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.